All right, now this is the very next text from the text we looked at last week. Last week we looked at a tremendous prophecy about the restoration of Israel, which looked not just to their return from Babylon uh, in captivity, but also to the ministry of Jesus Christ in his first coming and in his second coming. And then we have this narrative here uh, in Isaiah 36, really through verse through chapter 39, we see a narrative section of the prophecy of Isaiah. What's interesting about the prophecy that we see here in 36 and 37, it is almost, I mean, it's very close to a word-for-word a replica of what you find in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13, through chapter 20, verse 19. In other words, this story is recounted twice, practically verbatim, in the Old Testament. And to me, that communicates the importance of this story, about what is said and about what God does. It's important to God's people. But I want us to notice as we begin this text that this isn't happening in a vacuum, but this is happening in real time in history. This event uh, took place in 701 BC, give or take a few months. Uh, and it is uh, because we know that because it, it says uh, what year in King Hezekiah's reign uh, we are in. Here uh, we see Assyria has grown to great might. In truth, there is a new emperor, if you will, in Assyria. His name is Sennacherib. I know y'all love Tiglath-Phileser III. I mean, that's a fun name. Uh, but uh, Sennacherib, what a great, powerful name for a young boy. Uh, he, is, uh, he is insecure, though, about his position, and so he has actually sent his armies out on a campaign to bring in some rebels uh, in the area of Palestine back under his control. Uh, and Hezekiah had become one of those rebels. Hezekiah had stopped paying tribute. That means paying off a foreign power so they don't come and kill you. And uh, this did not please Sennacherib. And so along with uh, other kings that had done the same, uh, they are now tasting the steel of Assyria. And so here in our text, we find that there is an altercation. There is a conversation, if you will, from one of the generals of the Assyrian army and the officials of uh, Judah there in Jerusalem. Now, it's fascinating in our text uh, that we read, uh, it said that this conversation happened in verse 2. It says, he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, this is great. We didn't go over this necessarily in our study of Isaiah, but back in Isaiah chapter 7, you find that Isaiah, at the beginning of that text, uh, he has a conversation with Hezekiah's daddy, Ahaz. And he tells him specifically not to worry about the threats against Judah and not to make an alliance with Assyria. (laughs) He did not listen. He made an alliance with Assyria. And because he made an alliance with Assyria and because his son stopped paying tribute, the army of Assyria is standing outside the wall. In other words, here is this beautiful scriptural irony. We've returned to the scene of the crime. And it really does help us as readers think about this text because now we have the son of a king who didn't listen to the word of God 
And the question of this text is, will the son listen to the word of God? Will the son put his trust in God? Or will he trust something else or someone else? And that's partially what this story is about. Now, having said all that, and you're like, great, thanks. I love history. I love coming to church and hearing some bald guy tell me about stuff that happened 2,700 years ago. Very exciting. I know you all love history just like me. There are four or five of you who, who are like already half asleep, right? And you're like, so you've already mentioned this happened in 700. Uh, you've already given me a bunch of long names that I probably won't commit to memory. I'm not going to name my son Sennacherib. So what is the relevance of this to me, right? And we have to ask ourselves that question. Well, you know, I was thinking about this text when I was looking through Isaiah and I was saying, what should we look at? I really wanted to preach this text. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes in my life, I feel like I'm a walled city and the enemies are closing in. Sometimes I feel emotionally and intellectually like the swirl of cultural change and, and cultural uh, commitments are closing in. And it's almost as though through media and social media uh, that I can hear the captain of the army of the culture calling out to me, who do you think will save you from the changes that are coming? Now, I'm sure that I'm the only one who feels that way. I'm sure that most of you feel perfectly secure. You're perfectly happy with the way culture is going. You don't feel intimidated by it. You're not upset by it. And so just humor me as I profit from a tax that helps me see what to do when the enemies are literally at the gate and all too often in my head. That's our first point. We're going to look at the enemy at the gate and also in our head. We're going to look at the range of reaction to the threats around us. And lastly, we are going to look at the beauty of the God of history. So for those of you who like to take notes, that's where we're going. First of all, the enemy at the gate and also in my head. Here I love the mastery, and most commentators love the mastery of this representative of Assyria, good old Rabshakeh, uh, which is not a very good name for a son when you think about it. Uh, but Rabshakeh is really brilliant. I mean, this guy is intimidating. He understands propaganda. He knows how to manipulate people. Uh, but let's face it, his words have a little bit more oomph when you've got a giant army standing behind him. You know, right? It's easy to look intimidating, you know, with 200,000 soldiers standing at your back, right? And so here he is. He's talking trash, you know, much like, you know, NBA players after a slam dunk or whatever. He's talking trash to people on the wall. Uh, we notice later on in the text that uh, in verse 11, the representatives of Judah say, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic. For we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, that's Hebrew, within the hearing of the people who were on the wall. But good old Rabshakeh, he says, hey, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? That's trash talk right there. What he's saying is, yes, I could speak to you in the diplomatic language, but I want to make sure everybody holding a sword or a spear or a shield hears exactly what I'm saying. Because his goal is intimidation. 
And that's very helpful. What does he do as he thinks about intimidating? One is he starts playing on people's insecurities about those things they're depending on. And when the enemy is at the gate or in your head, that's exactly what they do. Notice he's calling out things that they're trusting in that might deliver them from 200,000 Assyrian soldiers standing outside the wall. First of all, he throws shade on King Hezekiah. Are you going to listen to Hezekiah? Notice, he doesn't even call him King Hezekiah. As far as Rabshakeh is concerned, there's only one king, and that's the high king, Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Who, who knows who this Hezekiah guy is? Well, of course, he's the Lord's, Lord's anointed. He's the, he's the great, 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 put in a couple more, grandson of King David. He, he's the man. But here, he's dissing him. He's saying, are you listening to this guy? Are you going to listen to your leader? And that's the first thing that uh, he wants him to feel a little insecure about. Maybe our leader doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe our leader is not so wise. Maybe our leader has made mistakes. And isn't that what the enemy always does? First, let's question the leader. You know, should you be depending on that leader? Secondly, he, he uh, insults Egypt. Did you notice that? I mean, I know. I, you guys were chuckling as he said it. He said, did you catch, I mean, it really is a beautiful burn. He says, Egypt is like a broken staff who basically will pierce anybody who leans on it. You know, you kind of picture a wooden staff that's been broken, has a sharp splintered top to it so that when you put any weight on it at all, it goes right through your hand. And he's like, yeah, that's what Egypt's like. Egypt has no power, no strength. In fact, Assyria had already pretty much routed Egypt uh, in this campaign. So he's not just talking smack. He's talking historical reality to some extent. Uh, because the people there in Judah were hoping Egypt might come and save them. And he says, yeah, that, that's a bad dependency. Your leader's not something you should depend on. Egypt's not something you should depend on. And then did you notice uh, that little comment about horses? I'll make a wager with you. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find enough people to ride them. Man, I guess the rodeo had not come through town in Judah. You know, I don't know what, you know, they don't have anybody to ride the horses. And you're like, what in the world is that about? Well, what he's doing, he's calling out their false dependence on technology. You see, war technology had changed. You know, in the old days, it was siege, primarily siege warfare. It was primarily, you know, your, your big iron chariots. If you read earlier in the Old Testament, that was like the tank of the ancient Near East. But now tactics have changed. And the Assyrians have begun to master the art of using cavalry, fast cavalry. And so these aren't horses pulling chariots. These are horses that are doing uh, great uh, pincher movements and, and flanking movements and able to outfight and outflank an enemy. And so here he's saying, hey, you don't even have people who can ride horses, and I've got 2,000 to spare. He, he's basically saying that technology, your old warfare technology, give me a break. And lastly, later in the text... He uses a beautiful psychological warfare. He says down in verse 16, he says, Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat his own vine, and each of you from his fig tree, and each of you will drink the water from his own cistern. What he's saying is, look, ignore Hezekiah and you'll have comfort and security. 
Isn't that what you really want? Don't you just want to be comfortable? Don't you just want to be left alone? Don't you just want to have a nice, a nice meal with a glass of wine and some fresh water? Isn't that really all you want? He goes, if you come out to me, that's what you'll have. Of course, he does bury a, a little bit of a pointed comment in the next verse. He says, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. In other words, until I come deport you. But you enjoy the bread and the wine and, and the water until I... I come and put hooks in your lips and drag you to Assyria, but until then, it'll be great. And so here, he is appealing to their securities. I find this very helpful. I think it's when we feel threatened, maybe by cultural changes, maybe by direct intimidation, maybe by stuff people say on social media or say to you when you're just walking down the street. It is easy for us to turn in our dependence to these kinds of things, who depend on some leader. Oh, I'm sure this leader, this mayor, this representative, this state senator, this president, this whoever, this, that's the person who will really deliver me. And that, that ends up being an easy target. It's a false dependence. Or perhaps it is that, uh, that we have some other ally. We, we, we say to ourselves, well, you know, eventually the trade unions will, will realize what's happening and they'll come over to our side. I know none of you are really hoping for, hoping for that, but, but nonetheless, you know, or we might say, or this group will come around, or maybe we'll, we'll get the silent majority out and they'll vote for this or that. And we always have these allies who are in effect like a broken reed. If you lean on them, they're just going to hurt you. Thirdly, and this is certainly true, don't we depend on technology? You know, I don't know about you, but I'm a Costco fan. I know I probably shouldn't advertise for companies, but I like Costco. Uh, so it's fine. I like Costco. But every now and then I see something funny, which if you have bought a lot of this, it's, it's cool. I'm not condemning you. I'm just chuckling a little bit at you. It's, there's a difference. But every now and then they'll have like the whole page on the website for like buying enough food to feed yourself for four years at a time. You know, it's all like dried and you just add a little water and you can put it in your bunker. And if you guys have that in your bunker, I hope you have enough for me because who doesn't want a pastor in the apocalypse, right? <laughs> but I'm not going to buy it. See, now you're laughing too, that's good. You know, but I, I see these things. That's essentially depending on technology. Well, yeah, the culture might continue to get bad and, uh, you know, it might all hit the fan, but I've got, I've got, you know, they'll never find that thing below my, below my basement where I have all that dried food stored. It's all good. I depend on my technology, you know, or maybe you've gotten your own AI engine. You're pretty sure that can counter anything. I don't know what you're depending on, but we love our technology and we're pretty sure that's going to get us out of a jam, right? But I want you to notice as this guy... Uh, talks, he really hits on, I think, what probably we depend on most, and that's just our sense of safety and security. Don and I were talking before the service. I was asking him, I said, so, you know, I have my own ideas of what in our culture I feel pressured by, that I think about, that disturbs me, that causes me emotional grief. I, and, and we were sharing notes. I said, what do you think people are struggling with? And we were chatting. And I said, you know what's funny is on the list wasn't the economy, Right? You know, it used to be, I've been a pastor long enough to have gone through a couple of recessions, uh, and then everybody's very upset about the economy. And, and he goes, well, I think everybody just has enough. And good for you. Good for you. You know, Don's already said it is more blessed to receive than to give. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's true. He, uh, I mean, he's the guy that makes sure we have money. So, I suppose, in that sense, he was thinking on behalf of the church. 
it's a bla I don't know. We'll we'll talk about it at staff meeting. But it's a uh, anyway. It is. But isn't that true? I mean, even when Don said it, I laughed. I said, "Boy, out of the heart, the mouth speaks." Right? You know. I mean, not just about Don, but about all of us. We all know the verse says it's more blessed. Uh, to give than to receive, but we all generally like getting presents more than buying presents. You know, we, we all know we like to be comfortable. And we say, well, I don't really care what's happening in the world as long as I've got a nice house and a nice car. And as long as I got that new air conditioner I installed because for some reason Colorado Springs is hotter than it used to be, right? You know, it, as long as I have my comfort, that, that's all I need. And we depend on that. But here I think the enemy that's at the gate and in our mind will manipulate all of that against us. They will threaten everything we depend upon in order to get us to comply with their wishes. You see, uh, this guy, Rabshakeh, all he wants is to avoid a lengthy siege campaign so his army can go kill other people. He's just trying to save time. He's just trying to save time. Before he moves on to the other thing, he really doesn't care about these people. He's just trying to get the job done so he can move on. And that's effectively how the culture is with people of faith. There's no concern for us, but they will use every tool to intimidate, to coerce, to convince. You know, and as we rely on all of these other things, we will be increasingly susceptible to those attacks. Oh, they're threatening my security. Maybe I should capitulate. They're going to turn off my technology and ban me from social media. I better capitulate. You know, oh, no, you know, they've indicted my leader once again, or they've, uh, you know, voted out that guy over there once again, or whatever your thing is. And you say, oh, no, I better capitulate. And here, this is the manipulation that the enemy always uses. It's great to see it from 2,700 years ago. And no, not much has changed in the world. But lastly... I want us to see that this guy goes one step too far. He mocks the idea of God's power and sovereignty. We see this really in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 36. Listen to what he says. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Have, has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? He says, Hezekiah's going to say, oh, just put your trust in God. He says, you know what? I've conquered a lot of people who had a lot of gods. And then it gets worse after uh, Hezekiah has a response later in chapter 37, uh, beginning in verse 9 through 12, the gloves come off. And uh, Sennacherib sends a messenger with Sennacherib's own words. And this is what he has to say about the idea of depending on Yahweh, depending on God. It says, now the king heard, 37 verse 9, now the king heard concerning uh, Tirkah, king of Cush, uh, he has set out to fight against you, and when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my father destroyed? What is, what is he saying? He's saying depending on God is dumb. 
Depending on God is dumb. Don't, I love it, how it says it. Don't let the, your God in whom you trust deceive you. He, he's say, calling God a liar. He's calling God impotent. Oh, you know, that's like if you've seen, you know, either one of the uh, Antonio Banderas classics, you know, Puss in Boots, you know. There's a, in both of them, there's a cat that, Whenever somebody says something really dramatic, it goes, ooh, you know, like, you did not just say that. Man, if we had that cat, it would be doing that right now. Oh, you should not have said that. But isn't it always the way? At the end of the day, the enemy at your gate and the enemy in your head will always say you're a fool for trusting God. You're a fool. For trusting God. God is lying to you. He cannot protect you. And isn't that the doubt? Doesn't that hit us in our insecurity the most? Isn't that what we wonder at two o'clock in the morning when we wake up in a cold sweat worrying about ourselves, our, our kids, our, our work, our whatever it is? Isn't it that nagging question? Is God true to his promises? Will God take care of me? The enemy knows how to hit us where it hurts. But I want you to know there is a range of response that we should have in this situation. Uh, a range of reaction. Let's look at some of these reactions very quickly because we want to get to God, the, the great and sovereign worker in history. Uh, verse 21 of chapter 36, it says, The people who heard all this, those, those dignitaries from Judah, they were silent. They answered not a word because the king's command was do not, say, do not answer him. And then these guys tore their clothes and went to Hezekiah and told him everything that Rabshakeh had said. Verse, uh, chapter 37, verse 1, it says, As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. What is the first reaction? Discouragement. Discouragement. I love it. I love the honesty of the Bible, you know. I think sometimes when we teach the Bible to kids... We're like, there's this huge adversity, the enemies are at the gate, and the person of God is like, I can do it, yes I can, right, you know, and that's a, that's a Disney film, that's not what the Bible says, right, I think it's a Disney film anyway, uh, right, that's what we think, but that's, that's the very trimmed down, simple version of faith, that's not the reaction of the people of God to true adversity, to lies being said about them and about God, the first reaction is discouragement. By ripping clothes and being in sackcloth and ashes, it's a way of mourning. And you're mourning for two things. One, you're mourning for the blasphemies that have been said right outside the wall of the holy city. And two, they are mourning because they can't do anything about it. They are mourning because they recognize their limitations and their weaknesses. And do you know that's a good start? When we think about the enemy around us, I know our tendency is to be anxious, but it's okay just to say, Lord, I, I don't know what to do. Discouragement is natural when we see ground being taken by those who hate God, hate his word, hate his glory have nothing to do with this kingdom, it's very normal to be discouraged. But secondly, 
there is desperate prayer. I love it. Notice he went into the house of the Lord. Yes, he's discouraged, but it doesn't stop him from going to a place he can meet with God. Now, all of you are here on a Sunday, uh, sunny Sunday in June. Thank you for that. You could be biking. You could be hiking. You could be enjoying this perfect weather, but you're here. Thank you. But you know, sometimes we think, I am so discouraged, I don't think I want to go to worship. Do you know you should say exactly the opposite? I am so discouraged, I really need to go to worship. You know, it's okay if you look a little sour when you walk in. Hopefully you look slightly less sour when you walk out. Right? Because you've been reminded of things that are true. You've been encouraged by the people who are around you who believe it's true. You've been bolstered by their love of God and their worship. And you might walk out discouraged, but hopefully you will know you are in a place where you are loved by God and his people and you are reminded of truth, eternal truth that comes from God's word. He goes into the house of the Lord and then he sent those dignitaries over to Isaiah. Very different reaction from Ahaz. Ahaz basically tried to duck Isaiah every chance he got. And here he sends dignitaries to them. And what does he say? He says to him, thus says Hezekiah, Verse 3 of chapter 37, the day, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Here we see a desperate prayer. Yes, it is made to Isaiah to make on behalf of the people to God. But here is a king who realizes all I've got is the Lord. You know, that's a great place to be. Jack Miller, uh, who was a great uh, preacher and, and writer and loved God's grace, uh, he used to have a point in his little seminar about being a, a child of God where he would say, all prayer is desperate prayer. All prayer is desperate prayer. I love that. Here, King Hezekiah is desperate. He is, in, he is in sackcloth. He has torn his clothes. And he realizes he's only got one hope, and it's God. And he says, Isaiah, would you please ask the Lord to help us for the sake of the remnant? That is, the, the people of God that are left. The few that are left. Because if you remember at the beginning of chapter 36, it said, Sennacherib's army has already wiped out most of Judah. All the fortified cities. Jerusalem is the only one left. They're just a handful. And he says, pray that God will spare that handful of believers. This is a man in desperate prayer. Do you know it's okay just to cry out to the Lord in desperate prayer? As a matter of fact, you know it's encouraged. Lord, help us. Now, I grew up I know I've told you this before in a church that talked back to me when I was preaching or when other people were preaching. They said things like amen, praise God, and stuff like that. I know we have two of you who do that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, every now and then. I know if I was better, y'all would talk back to me more. I'm sure that's the way it goes, you know. But you knew that you had a preacher boy in the pulpit when you got a lot of help him, Lord, right? Help him, Lord. You know, so he's just preaching his heart out. He's lost his point. And you might think I have, but I haven't. And they just shout out, help him, Lord. That's a desperate prayer of somebody who wants to hear some truth from God's word that day. Help him, Lord. That's why I love those simple prayers that the church has cherished for years. Have mercy, O Lord. 
have mercy. Help me, Lord. These are honest, desperate prayers. And you know that many of us, instead of being anxious all the way as we drive to work or to our mother-in-laws or to our friends or to that date, instead of being anxious, we should be giving those desperate prayers up to God. Help me, Lord. Have mercy. Help me. Give me grace. Give me wisdom. Give me kindness. Give me insight. Help me. You need to recognize your need, your desperate need of God. So that's part of the response. But I also want us to see that Hezekiah shows himself to be more dependent on God than his father Ahaz. That's an understatement for those of you who've read the whole story. Because he actually gets all the way to kingdom prayer. That's what I call chapter 37, verse 14 through 20. Listen to how Hezekiah prays to God. Hezekiah received the letter. The letter that's like, are you going to trust in God? Look at all these other gods that I've destroyed. That really nasty note from Sennacherib. He received that letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. It's not that the Lord didn't know what it said. It was just a way of obedience saying, I'm putting this before you, Lord. He puts the letter there so, you know, God can see it. So he knows God sees it. Of course, God does see it. But sometimes we need that encouragement. And he put it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, listen. Who does he start with? Himself? No. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heaven and the earth. I love it. What does he start with? He starts with God. It's easy to forget who you are. You are the only God of heaven. You are the one who created everything I've ever experienced or see. You are the one that are above the cherubim. Now there he could, he could be talking about just, you know, the height of the honor and glory of God. Or he might be talking above the mercy seat. And the holy of holy where the cherubim overlook the mercy seat. Where God meets his people in their need with mercy. But either way he's calling out. He's talking about who God is. But notice he goes on. Verse 17. Here's his petition. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. I love it. O Lord, do you hear this? Do you see this? Of course, he knows he does. He knows he does. Notice how he continues. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they are no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. I love it. Hezekiah is praying theology to God. He goes, yeah, he's, he's definitely defeated all those gods that weren't gods, those man-made dependents, you know, those things that people rely on that ultimately can't hold any water. Yes, but they aren't gods. And notice how he comes back. Verse 20, so now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. Do you hear how Hezekiah's faith has moved him from just being discouraged and just feeling desperate as he comes before the Lord? Now he's praying about God's glory. Now he's praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Now he's talking not about his safety or security or the safety or security of his people, but he's talking about the honor and glory of God. I'm telling you, you know the Spirit's been moving when your eyes have been taken off yourself and are now directed to God's plan and purposes in the world. And that's where he's gotten. Now, sometimes we just stay in the discouragement, but we need to move to the desperation. And sometimes we move just in the desperation and we forget the theological truths that God is the only God and that he loves his glory more than anything. And so that's exactly the way Hezekiah prays. And this is the way Jesus taught us to pray, as I've already, to- I've already mentioned. Oh, Lord hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those aren't throwaway words, those are kingdom words. That reminds us of who our king is, regardless of our desperation or discouragement. But then I love this story. And I think the reason it's in the Bible twice is because we see the God of history at work. Oh, I love it. I love it. In chapter uh, 37, verse 33 through 36, we see how the Lord responds. And we're going to back up and talk a little bit about what he says, but this is how he responds. Chapter 37, verse 33, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Not Hezekiah, notice that. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. And then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrash, his god, uh, and Dramelech and Sherez, his son, struck him down with the sword. <laughs> oh, God takes care of his people. God's working in history. The king of Assyria had lost perspective. He had thought that he was the sovereign of history. And God reminds him that no. God is the God of history, and he will take care of his people. Now, he does it in this miraculous way. Some writers are saying uh, Herodotus actually talks about this great defeat of the Assyrian army, and uh, it's possible that uh, 185,000 died by an outbreak of the uh, bubonic plague or something of that nature. We don't know. It doesn't matter. God did it. God delivered his people. God works in history. This is a real-time situation. God is not abstract. He's not separate. He's not just up in heaven. He is active here on earth. And you know why that's encouraging? Because we need to know that. I think sometimes we talk about the enemies at our own gate or in our head like God just doesn't work in history anymore. Like like God has forgotten about his people. Like, Like God has forgotten how to do it. These kinds of stories are in the Bible twice to remind the people of God, God has the power to do what accomplishes his will and promotes his glory. And that's exactly what he will do. It doesn't matter how big the king, how big the talk, it doesn't matter how much trash they can speak, God is more powerful. We need to know that. Do we actually believe that? Do you know what? Here's the truth. My anxieties belie the truth that I don't believe it. 
When I'm anxious about the enemies at my gate, when I'm anxious in all the changes in the culture, when that keeps me up at night, when that's all I can talk about, it is belying a reality that I don't believe God is a God of history and will work and will save his people. It's, that's the truth. The Bible tells us don't be anxious about anything. But through prayer, with thanksgiving, present your requests uh, to God and the peace that passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The Bible says, look, cast your burdens on the Lord for he cares for you. Well, you can only do that if you think he's a God of history, that he still loves and provides for his people, that he's not allowing anything to come across their path that will not promote his purposes and his glory. He's still a God of history, working in this world and working in his life. And I love it because God does a little trash talking himself. Now, when God does trash talking, it's just holy truth. But it is trash talk nonetheless. Chapter 37, verse 23 through 29, I love it. This is from the Lord. We see it, if you're looking at a copy of God's word, it, it becomes poetry as uh, the Lord speaks. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. I like that. First thing, do you know who you're talking about? This almost sounds like when God comes to Job. Oh, we're going to have a conversation. You better pull your trousers up. That's my, that's my translation, right? You know. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, with my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come into its remotest height, uh, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells, I drank waters, to dry up the sole of my foot, all the streams of Egypt. In other words, he's like, you brag a lot. That's a summary of those two verses. You brag how you... Uh, you know, went up and knocked out Lebanon. You bragged how you just have complete dominance of Egypt. Let's talk about it. Verse 26. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned it from days of old. What now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like the plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. I love it. Do you hear that? God is saying, you sure do brag a lot for somebody who's just accomplishing the plan I set out for you. You know what? That's a great, that's a great rebuke to my own heart, isn't it? Isn't it? Look at all I've done. Look at all I've accomplished. Look at how much money is in my bank account. Look at how beautiful my children are. Look at how they've aced those standardized tests yet again. You know, look at my car. It uses no gas. Look at this. Look at this. You know, I don't know. Whatever. I'm trying to hit stuff y'all would brag about. I don't know. Look how good looking I am at 35. You know, I don't know. Whatever your thing is. And the Lord says, you do know that all of that's true only because that's what I ordain. You've just been walking the path that I ordained for you. you. Who's the greater? The person who does the great things or the person who wrote that into history and made sure it happened? I don't even think that's a question. Verse 28. I love it. This is where it gets very high security. God says, I know you're sitting down. And you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. I know where you live, boy. That's what he's saying. Southern translation. I know where you live. I know where you go. I know where you eat. 
you know, you can't hide from me. Okay, see, it helps if I translate it, right? Verse 29, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back by the way that you came. I love it. This is a stinger because the hook, the, no, the hook in your nose and the bit in your mouth is the way Assyrians marched off deported peoples. Think about it. I know that's a fashion accessory now, you know, to have like a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth. And, and if you have that, that's cool. To be honest, I really appreciate your courage for being here. Thank you. You know, around all these people in like the greatest generation, you're a brave soul. Uh, but anyway, originally that was a, a way you attach that to a string. And let's just say you can make people go where you want. If you've got a piece of metal in your nose and in your lip, and I just have a light little string, every time I tug on that, you're going to go the way I want you to go. And God said, that's the way I'm going to do with you. And I love it. Because I think that we make our enemies, real or perceived, in this world right now, so big that no one can control them. The sovereign God of the universe has, has a hook in their nose and a bit in their, in their lip. And he'll take them right where he wants to take them. We do not need to worry about them. God is in control. That is an encouragement to the people of God. He is the master of their history, and he is the master of our history. Have I said that enough? So, what do I want you to leave with this morning? Let's put it down. Cookies are going to be on the bottom shelf here. Some of you, many of you, most of you, all of you, have walked in here today with something that you consider to be an enemy that's eating your mental lunch. It's robbing your joy. It's increasing your anxiety. And in that, you have forgotten that God is in control of whoever those people are or whatever that movement is or whatever that robot that's now writing essays in high schools is. I don't know what it is you're worried about. That God is in control. He is in charge that his sovereignty has not been diminished over the last 2,700 years, that his power has not grown weaker. And you know what's even better than that? He loves you. Notice we need to go back because it wouldn't be a sermon if we don't ultimately get to Jesus because that's what all of God's word uh, is pointing us to. Don't you love it? When God gave the response to that desperate prayer, he said that he would hear their prayer for the sake of his servant, David. In other words, God is reminding the people of God about a promise that he made to King David. That David would always have someone on the throne. That Hezekiah didn't need to worry about the people of God being wiped out. That God would maintain the people of God. And he would maintain the leader of the people of God, the son of David. And what we know is the ultimate son of David is Jesus Christ. And he brought that to fulfillment through the Assyrians, through the Babylonians, through the Greeks, through the Romans. And yet the son of David comes and is the king of kings. And that is testimony to us that God will never, ever abandon or fail to provide for his people. Now, it may not feel or look like we wish it was, but he will provide for us in it and through that trial. 
Uh, Paul says, don't be uh, surprised, or actually it's Peter, uh, by the fiery trial that is happening to you. Don't be surprised. You know, that's just part of the people of God. God's got it. It's part of his plan because we have seen the king, the one who comes from David, rise to the throne. We know that God is accomplishing, has accomplished, will accomplish his purposes and plans, and he will work through history, ancient and contemporary and future to accomplish that purpose. Folks, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, we can have confidence in that beautiful truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness. Lord, it's a lot to try to cover a story this big. And I pray, Lord, that you will bring us back to it time and again so that we can see the reality of our false dependencies, our need to be uh, desperate in our prayers and dependence upon you, and that you will remind us to focus upon your purposes and your kingdom, which will always, always, always be accomplished. Oh, Lord, we pray that you encourage our discouraged hearts, that you will strengthen our feeble knees and our weak hands to accomplish your purpose of continuing to depend upon you and continuing to show your grace, glory, and love in this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.